0: Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, the Chair of the Committee. The 2023 Marlborough Book Festival was a fantastic weekend and we are looking forward to sharing the recordings with you very soon. For now, enjoy this great session from the 2022 Book Festival.
1: Kia everyone, welcome to Spy Valley Wines and our last afternoon session for today. So cool to have you all here and to have people back in our venue, seats are filled, very, very exciting. So Spy Valley Wines, we're um, proud sponsors of the Marlborough Book Festival and what a cool weekend it's been. Now I have um, an absolute pleasure to introduce the chair, so we've got um, Glenn Walters who's um, running the session. Um, Glenn was communications manager for the Marlborough District Council, also a music promoter and vinyl DJ who reckons he reads too much rock and roll biographies. Um, oh, he's also, I think we might need a round of applause, he stepped in today, last minute, he saved the day, uh, the person who was going to cheer unfortunately got COVID, so thank you very much for stepping in today, really appreciate it. Um, over to you, Enjoy.
2: Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody. Um, Steve Braunius writes for the New Zealand Herald and is literary editor at Newsroom. Steve has published 10 books and has won a multitude of writing awards. He published no less than two books last year, uh, The Missing Person's True Crime Ki- Collection, which we're going to be covering today, and also Cover Story. And for anyone who was there last night, we had a very entertaining evening looking at 100 beautiful, strange and incredible New Zealand record covers. Um, And Steve and I went down to the car boot sale this morning to see if we could find any, and sure enough, we did. (laughs) We struck gold. Um, And that book is also available here today, I understand. Um, Steve was last here in 2016, talking about true true stories of crime and punishment in his book, Scene of the Crime. Mm -hmm. We're delighted to have him back at the Spy Valley cellar door this year to discuss Missing Persons, his latest collection of true crime writing, which exposes 12 extraordinary tales of disappearance in New Zealand. Please join me in in welcoming Steve (laughs) Brawnius. Steve, there's a a roll call of horror in your book, um, which I had great trepidation in opening on Wednesday when I got the phone call from, from Sophie. Um, but we'll get into a little bit of the reasons why I should not have been worried a little bit later. Um, but there are some pretty tough um, cases of true crime in this book. Uh, the names Malcolm Raywa, Ron van der Platte, Mark Lundy, and a number of others are covered in this book. But it's, it's bookended by the Grace Mullane case, um, and I'm sure we're all well aware of that case. You devote quite a lot of this book to that case. In fact, it's the beginning and the end. Was there a particular reason for that? Was it the international element of the case or was there a particular connection or perhaps dislike you found for Jesse Kempson who was ultimately convicted of her murder? <coughs>
3: um, I wrote a lot about the uh, malane trial because everybody was thinking about it and most of us... have thought about it since, and Grace Mullane is not a name that we can easily uh, forget. Um, I've been covering, I do a lot of different kinds of writing. Crime is one of them. And I've been covering crime on and off for a number of years. And the Grace Mullane case um, stood out for me and for most people in the country. I think as, um, not simply as uh, one of the most horrifying cases, not at all. It was really as a case which um, was maybe the most sorrowful killing that we've uh, been confronted with in the country in the past 10, 20 years. It was just such deep sorrow and there was a, a very brief and terrible narrative arc to the story of Grace Mullane. You may recall that we first heard about her uh, when, she was, when she had the status of a missing person. Where is Grace? And it led the news every night. And it was the front page of every paper. Where is she? And this photograph, this very beautiful uh, girl from England, and in other words, we were her host, and she was our guest. And everybody, kids, everyone thought about it. And it struck us really deeply as a deep sorrow and a deep concern that we would find her. <coughs> and that brings us to the end of the brief narrative art. We found a body, and the, and the sense of tragedy and disappointment that we felt was really profound. Um, The Prime Minister very memorably talked about it and I think she wept. Um, And then, uh, well, there was a coda to that story, wasn't there, in the trial. And we heard about the unbelievable circumstances uh, of not of her death, in a sense, uh, the the thing which was least troubling, almost about the story of the case of Grace Millane, was not the nature of her death, but what happened to her afterwards, and that was the thing that was beyond uh, belief, and added a that added a layer of horror to the sorrow we had already felt, and. Um, There is sort of no act that we can commit which does not have a description. Kempson, Jesse Kempson, the killer, his act uh, inspired a description from the judge in that case, a guy called Simon Moore. Um, you very seldom see it referred to in criminal law. I had never seen it before. It's, you reach for it in extreme circumstances, and Simon Moore reached for this extreme word in this circumstances, circumstance in which he um, said that it came under the definition of depravity. And a very intelligent and judicious man, Simon Moore, he would not have chosen that word on a whim And it was a thunderously accurate word to describe what Kempson had done with uh, Grace's remains off the chart, really. So, yeah, uh, the fact that um, she inspired such sorrow and grief was something that I was very attracted to and made me want to write about it. Uh, at length, at length, and went to every single second of that trial, which actually wasn't all that long, uh, but was um, extraordinary in many ways. Um, <clears throat> I've never been to a trial which had been so quiet. There's always a bit of horsing around, even in the most abhorrent of murder trials, when the jury are out, or even when the jury are there, there's, there's jokes. It's there's not even black humour, it's just the the human impulse, some light relief. That was uh, absent in the Grace Millane trial. There was this terrible sort of suspension during the whole trial. No one was chatting. No one was, it wasn't just there, there was an absence of laughter. There was an absence of chat, you know, and you break for recess or you break for lunch. And normally there's a bit of, Banter, a bit of chat between the media and the lawyers, or something. And it was just quiet the whole time, um, and it was out of respect for Grace Mullane. Um, it's not a good thing or anything. It doesn't. It doesn't absolve anything which happened. But maybe this is a small good thing. But I thought. Um, the trial, at least, uh, because it was under the gaze of um, more media than just New Zealand, this is a big story around the world. The English media were all over it. Um, the small good thing is that I thought the trial um, um, showed us as a country uh, in a pretty good light. Um, the trial was run with the utmost sort of not just efficiency, but decency. Uh, the media coverage I didn't think was reckless. And um, probably there was a, a main lesson in it for me um, about murder uh, and violent crime per se. Uh, as I say, there was a huge amount of media coverage every day. Um, and I thought about this because there had been some criticism of it that the newspapers and TV are just doing it for ratings or audience. And, of course, that is a motive. Of course it is. Um, But they were doing it because people wanted to read about it and they wanted to watch it. And I really sincerely believe this. I don't think our um, need to read about this and to hear about it was anything grotesque. I don't think it showed us in any kind of um, vampiric way. Uh, the lesson to me is that this was a, New Zealand was a community who cared deeply about Grace Mullane, about what happened, and we wanted um, we wanted you know we wanted justice. There was no way in the world that this guy was going to go free. There was not a second doubt that he would get. A, a verdict of not guilty, but yeah, I thought it was deep concern uh, from from New Zealanders who were interested in this case, and that would be a hell of a lot of New Zealanders. And I, I thought it showed us to in a good light, actually, the, that we weren't, um, you know, blood suckers or anything like that. Ooh, crime! How fascinating. It was really out of concern for the victim in this case, Grace Mullane, and also for her family. And um, just the fact itself that the courtroom was so quiet and so respectful, um, you could extend that beyond the, the door of courtroom 13 and say that was really the way New Zealand was feeling too, I thought. There was, no, there was nothing sick about it. There was no black humour. Um, I thought it was really respectful uh, because so many of us felt what had happened. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think there's an important lesson in that one, um, that we, um, we recognise the grief of the situation. Some crimes are sort of spectator sports, actually. You don't feel too much in it whatsoever. It's just kind of fascinating or gory or weird. This one wasn't like that. Uh, this one wasn't like that at all.
2: Um, when you're sitting in court and listening to all this information, Steve, how do you maintain your own impartiality? And what's it like as a senior journalist? And I know you've done this for a few years, but I'm, I guess there's there's probably younger journalists in in the room with you. How do you maintain your impartiality? How do you not come to the assumption that somebody's guilty or not after the first day? How do you deal with that?
3: Hmm. Um. Oh, I'm just uh, I'm just very attentive. I'm just prepared to listen to everything that's being said. Um, from both sides. I thought the, his defence was really good. I thought they mounted a really good defence. Um, the fatal flaw in the defence of Jesse Kempson is that there was nothing that they could say and nothing that they did say about what he had done with her body, and that's where it all went wrong for them. But the way that they defended the actual charge of murder, um, which they faced a lot of criticism for, I thought that was proper. I thought that was interesting. Um, I thought that they were doing what they had to do, and they did it very cleverly and respectfully. I thought it's just that they were never going to They didn't have a chance in hell. You know, you don't, <laughs> <you, laughs> there's just no way. You can't, You couldn't come back from what he did with the body. You know, um, you just couldn't come back from it. And um, I'll just say one thing very briefly, and that is um, in every murder trial or every every trial of anything, uh, the police prepare a uh, a book for the prosecution for the defense for the jury, and part of that book is uh, has photographic the photographic uh, history of what 's happened crime scene photographs things like that mortuary photographs things like that. Um, I make it my business to look at these with every trial because I think you should. You should really know what actually happened. And I'll just say this very briefly. Uh, I had a look, of course, at the uh, photo crime book of Grace Mullane and the suitcase. And there's no coming back from that. You don't do that to a
2: human being. Um, And how do you switch off at the end of the day, Steve, when you've seen something like that or been confronted with it? How do you go home, make dinner, carry on with your life?
3: Oh, make dinner, yeah. (laughs) Make dinner. I I think about it uh, about two minutes after I leave the court, really. um, I think it would be vain and grandiose to carry it with you. Oh, the pain I am feeling here. I'm a very sensitive person. How shocking, how vain, how arrogant, how grandiose, if you did think that, because you're just there as an observer. You haven't suffered any kind of violence, and you haven't lost anybody. Um, The most poignant people, I think, in most trials, uh, are less the uh, family of the accused, uh, sorry, the family of the victim, as the family of the accused. And case in point, is Kempson, uh, Mullane's murderer, and his dad turned up every day. Every single day. Didn't say anything, didn't do anything. That was a, I thought that was a magnificent gesture. And he was a poignant and tragic sight. He was no way to blame. Hadn't been a bad dad or anything like that. There was no simple narrative linking him to bad parenting created a monster or anything like that. He just came every day um and God knows what he was feeling you know how how he was feeling when he went home at the end of the day but for me uh this is um this is something I'm terribly attracted to um but it's not something. At all that I um, that causes me any um, discomfort, nothing, ever, not a second. However, there would be uh, an exception to that. <clears throat> um, anyone see? It was about two weeks ago. I'm not going to talk about it in any detail whatsoever. But there was a really uh, awful. Um, murder trial i think i think it was in Rotorua. involved a child i couldn't i I read a little bit of it i couldn't even read it Uh, i couldn't have reported that one um yeah i probably would have lasted a day and got the hell out you know i'd be no good there i'd just be a wreck um i would be i would be my grief and, 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 and disbelief at what had happened would have invaded that courtroom. And I, I, don't, I don't, my grief doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong there. I couldn't have done that one. I've never attended a trial for um, it's purely being the abuse and, and, and murder of a child, I suppose, with one exception. And that was quite hard, actually, uh, in some respects. Uh, is uh, written about in this book, and that's the um, the uh, continuing trials and questions over the guilt or otherwise of Mark Lundy, a chap who was found guilty twice of the murder of his wife
2: and, of course, his um, child. Um, and and public opinion seemed to predetermine the outcome of that trial. Do you think?
3: Oh, exactly. I mean, it was just like the Jesse Kempson thing, you know. I mean, I, I was really quite... I was disappointed in a lot of the media at the Grace Mullane trial that the journalists were plainly loathed Kempson and were just waiting, you know, to type the word guilty. You know, they were all but writing it all throughout the trial, which I don't think is correct. And the same case with um, with Lundy. Um who who I don't have a firm opinion on, or whether he's guilty or innocent. Um, Many people do have a firm opinion. Uh, I'm not going to seek a show of hands uh, in this. (laughs) Oh, go on, go on. (laughs) No, but, uh, well, I I did that quite foolishly uh, at a a public lecture I gave last year in um, Arrowtown. Who's familiar with fucking Arrowtown? <laughs> <clears throat> Slum of the stupid rich. <laughs> so the subject of Lundy came up, and the reason I'm talking about this is that uh, the subject of Lundy came up, and I, I, I could feel a, a certain kind of um, hostility emanating from the stupid rich. <laughs> you become a little bit attuned to to, to audiences. And I stopped what I was talking about and said, look, I just want to raise something. I said, look, we're all friends here, which is a total lie. (laughs) (laughs) I hated them. Arson is a terrible crime, but I think burning down Arrowtown, I'd get a knighthood. (laughs) Anyway, so we're all friends here. Can I um, get a, a show of hands for people who... You know might believe in something as far fetched as as the death penalty, and uh there were two people whose hands did not go up, obviously not from Arrowtown, probably from Blenheim <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah crazy right I mean, there's a there's a lot of people there that day about three hundred or something so uh and I thought geez, so uh getting back to mark lundy you know would would you have had him Executed. I yeah. Well, so you don't know. You know, you don't know. You haven't examined it at any length. You've just got this uh, shocking hostility towards them. Let's face it, they may be right. You, you know, he may well be guilty. It's a really strong case against him. It's a really strong case. Again, this is not whimsical or, or anything casual. They've mounted a very strong case against him for years. And it's, 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 it's persuasive. It persuaded a jury at the time, and then many years later it, devi- it persuaded a um, really rancid jury uh, many years later in the retrial. Shocking. People and that jury, shocking. It was all wrong. It was all wrong. They did this incredible thing where um, they, they retired to, to reach their verdict. They retired for several days. And I think on um, on day three, uh, juries will often tap on the door and, and, and they want to ask a question. So everyone rushes back to court. What's the question was going to be? And uh, I write about it, and here it was um, it, 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 it was it was incredible. They wanted to watch the police video of Mark Lundy being arrested and cautioned and charged, rather, with murder. They wanted to see his response. They wanted to observe and examine that really uh, brilliant forensic science called body language. And it was at that point that the, 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 the defence, they, they knew it was over, and I... I, um, the judge went, oh, right, okay, uh, we'll, we'll get this, we'll get the tape, you know, come back in 20 minutes while we get the tape. And so I went out and and, and went up to the um, uh, defence lawyer, chief defence lawyer, QC, really nice guy, and said, mate, you're fucked. <laughs> get away from me, get away from me, I don't want to talk about it. In other words, he was agreeing with me. And... Um, and while they but this is this is the this is the real thing. This is like something out of black ops. This is like something out of a bad Netflix series. While they they they, they found the tape and they played it. And uh the courtroom sat and watched this really quite dreary twenty-minute video of Mark Valundy being charged with murder. The extraordinary thing was is that one of the jurors, and you could tell he was. this was a plan, that they talked about it. One of the jurors had a job, and his job was not to watch the video that they'd requested to watch. His job was to watch Mark Lundy in court responding to the video, and he was, like, leaning forward and tapping once or twice on the shoulder of the uh, head of the jury, the fall person, full woman, I think if she was, and whispering. And I was like, that what are you doing? The hell are you doing you're s- standing you're sitting in court watching Mark Lundy respond to being arrested i don 't know fifteen years ago. that what's this got to do with anything? That was the one thing they wanted to see, and obviously they'd, they'd made up their minds or they'd developed a theory that this guy was guilty, and they had the intuition to know that by watching him respond. To a video. It's just crazy. Having said that, um, that is no comment whatsoever on his guilt or innocence. What it is a comment on is um, you can only establish this by, in a courtroom, by providing um, a brilliant case of forensic evidence. And um, I kind of did. I kind of did. It was a strong case. And um, a very strong case uh, with all sorts of, all sorts of possibilities. I, um, Lundy has a guy in his corner, uh, a Joe Caron character called Jeff. And I went out to Jeff's house a couple of years ago. Um, he, he's got like crates and crates of Lundy material. I said, I went out with you know, a thermos of coffee and a bag of lamingtons and um, some soup, actually. And I said, can I you know, sit in your shed and, and go through stuff? Never know. You know. Knock yourself out. Um, so I did, and um, there was the usual stuff there, which I'd read a million times. There was stuff which was vaguely interesting, which I hadn't read before, and then, um, what I was interested in this particular search was um, that one of the central questions of the Lundy case is, if not Lundy, who? Who? Who were the police interested in? Were there other suspects? And there was a quite a thin file <laughs> devoted to that subject, which I finally sort of found. And... Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was fascinating. I found one particular interview with a truck driver who, remember this was in Palmerston North, and he had parked around the corner from the local countdown at one in the morning. Uh, he was on a run from Palmerston North to Whanganui, I think. And he was just sort of parked in an alleyway, at the end of an alleyway with the lights on, waiting to go, he was just like checking the manifest, and the truck was pointed towards an alleyway with the lights on. And he sees someone appear in an alleyway, holding a bag, a sports bag with mesh on it. And he gets a fright, because it's one in the morning in Palmerston North where everyone is either dead or asleep. So he bangs on the lights full bore, which I thought was a strange reaction. (laughs) It was me walking down the alleyway, Christ, what are you doing? Anyway, he does that and he gets a really good look at this strange individual walking around Palmerston North at 1am, which no one has done since 1956. (laughs) Research will show. And so he gets a really good look and um, he tells police about it. And they're not interested. They're not interested because their insane theory at that time was that the killings occurred during Shortland Street at 7pm. They don't care. So he gets dismissed. Lundy gets charged, found guilty of killing his family during Shortland Street when it was not... Remember the whole myth about the Great Drive from Wellington? It was complete nonsense. Um thanks in large degree to uh, one of Blenheim's great heroes, Mike White, the journalist, uh, who looked into the Lundy case in such a forensic detail that it caught the interest of a QC in London, the same chap who I had the dialogue with that I was telling you about, who decided to look into it. And he made an appeal, and it was a successful appeal thanks to Mike White. Incredible piece of journalism, really. And um, so then he was retried, and the police said, yeah, actually, nah, they weren't killed during Shortland Street. They were killed somewhere between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. When was the sighting of the person? Just after 1. So I called up the truck driver. I managed to track him down. I said, "Who do you think you saw?" Because in all of this, in all of this, no one saw anyone at the scene of the crime. Anyone, no man, nothing. You know, that night, the next day, there's no sightings of anything apart from this one. Pos- this was definite sighting. And um, I said, "Who do you think it was?" And he said. Oh, no doubt about it, it was the murderer. So who did he see? Did he see Mark Lundy? Or did he see the person who, or did he see another person who had killed uh, the wife and child of Mark Lundy while he was slumbering in a motel room in Petone? And this is the only person, the only witness. Might have been just, you know, someone walking around at 1am in Thamerson North with a sports bag. Um, The unfortunate thing about it is that his his description at the time, um, which was of a person, uh, a thin person of about five foot five, had changed when I talked to him to a person who closely resembled Mark (laughs) Lundy. Yeah, it was Lundy, mate. He did it. No doubt about it. I said, but at the time, you said he was five foot... Oh, whatever. Um, So maybe this shorter, much more slender person was just someone walking around Palmerston North, or they'd committed this incredible crime. Um, I mentioned the sports bag. Um... Is this where he had uh, a pair of overalls, blood-stained overalls? Is this where the weapon was? No weapon was ever found. Fascinating name. Yeah, I phoned up the cops, the the head of the uh, inquiry, really good guy. I said, hey, uh, why don't you talk to this guy again? He said, that's a good question. (laughs) <laughs> I'll look into that. And he got back to me a couple of days later and I said, Yeah, well, you know, his description was so crazy, it varied wildly. He would have been an unreliable witness. I said, Don't you think that, you know, it's the only person might have who saw each someone? Yeah. But that's uh that's um that's part of the um as part of the ongoing and endless fascination with um, all sort of violent crime writing. There are so many fine details. They never, they never stop, and they might be relevant or they might be irrelevant, but they're all incredibly interesting, and I just find it incredibly interesting, you know, when you said before about impartiality or, or how do you cope with it, you know, I, I feel nothing except intently interested like super interested and hopefully you sort of like behave decently during the trial. You don't sort of laugh like a jackass at bad <laughs> moments or anything like that. But it's just so intently interesting and, of course, um, intently interesting to write about. Super interesting to write about.
0: Hi, I'm Kate Goldie. I'm a writer and a publisher and a reader. Awesome, and... What do you think of our Marlborough Book Festival? Well, it's one of the great festivals in the Southern Hemisphere because it is so carefully thought through. It has superb content, very carefully curated collection of writers and presenters. And then it looks after everyone at the festival, writers and the participants and the audiences so beautifully Wine is very present, which is, of course, wonderful. But um, everyone stays in the most beautiful surroundings and are looked after. Every need is looked after. And then there's just the communion of writers and, and the communion of writers with their audiences. I've had such good conversations with people after um, various um, presentations. So it's, um, it's, it's an absolutely top happening for me, yeah. Um.
2: When I was called upon to talk to Steve this week, um, I, I managed to read some of the book. I admit I've not read all of it, but um, one thing that Steve is incredibly good at is applying humour to these very dark stories. Um, and the introduction to the whole book is wonderful, and I highly recommend the book because it's because there are twelve different cases in it plus an introduction. It's something. It's a book you can dip into. Um, but Steve, I. Why do you use humour? Is it is it a way for to carry the reader through? I mean, it, it's it's peppered through many of the many of the cases, and of course, the Lundy trial was a comedy of errors in itself in some ways. Mm, mm. Um, and also, you you observe for yourself the way that the courts act and the way that these these rather pompous some of them people in in court mm. are acting. Mm. Um, does humour help you? help you or the reader carry us through the sort of grisly nature of what we're dealing with?
3: It's a good question. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I tend not to think about um, the reader uh, when I'm writing. Uh, I don't like second guess, like, oh, this will be entertaining or this will take their mind off it or this will engage them. I don't know who they are. Uh, I'm writing for the only reader that I know, and that's me. I'm reading it. I'm reading it while I'm writing it. And I want to read something quite good, you know? I want to read something which is an accumulation of small and possibly irrelevant facts told with a, um, a narrative which uh, keeps me reading. Uh, it's almost incidental that I'm writing it in a way. And I'm just trying to write it to a a standard which I find uh, acceptable. Um, And as for uh, the use of humour, oh, you know, um, you can't be um, solely serious about anything for too long, really. It becomes insincere. It becomes fake. Uh, I mean, you know, you... You read a lot of sort of like crime writing in the paper and it's got a certain tone, you know. It's usually quite disapproving and pious and judgmental and it's such a fucking bore, you know. It's not realistic. It's insincere. It's not correct. It's, it's, it's phony, that, that, that devastating word, the most devastating word in literature of the 20th century, phony, thanks to Holden Coalfield and uh, Catcher in the Light. It's phony, and um I guess one of the things i'm I'm wanting to do when I write these things and when I read them while i 'm writing is that i don't want to be phony you know i i um i'm writing for myself and i i um I, you know we all see humor in all sorts of situations all the time, and I think that's accurate i think the the um Mm, There's like a terrible sort of, uh, there's a terrible word which describes uh, kinds of um, journalism, uh, feature writing. uh, And the terrible word is, um, oh, it's color. It's color writing. Uh, You know, because it has detail or something like that. And I always think the complete opposite. I think the way I I write is completely black and white. Uh, You always know what's going on. You always know where you are. It's not phony, it's not colored. It's not biased. It's not... It's not... Um, well, It tries not to be dumb. You know? Uh, and colour writing is usually like sentimental or, or, or something like that, or it puts on a stern face. Um, and a good example of this is that, you know, when someone is found guilty, that then equates to a fact. So it goes from... Uh, The prosecutor said Mark Lundy uh, sneaked into, uh, staged a break-in and slaughtered his family. And it goes from that to Mark Lundy staged a break-in and slaughtered his family. And you can say that and it will be fact because it's in law. Uh, I can't do that. I can't write that because I don't know if that's what happened. I don't know if that's what happened. And I'm, you know, impartial about it. Uh, but you read that all the time in all kinds of violent crimes, like, like, like the Malayne one, you know, and then he did this to her. And I said like, you don't know that. You're just saying that because you're allowed to say it. What actually happened? You don't know. You don't know, and, um, you know, mystery is such a sort of an element, isn't it, of, of, of homicide in New Zealand, and uh, there are so many sort of cases of uh, spectacular incompetence in the New Zealand police, unfortunately. Uh, I think we all think that of the Arthur Allen Thomas case. Some of you may think that of the Marlborough Sounds case. And then sometimes, sometimes, and I write about this in there, sometimes there are cases of spectacular competence. And it's really good police work. And a good example here, and I write about it, it's in some detail, I think, is the uh, police interview with Jesse Kempson, uh, who they charged with the murder of Grace Mullane. And uh, the detective's interview technique uh, is just a masterclass. It's so terrific. And uh, sort of to describe it very simply is that He's quiet. He doesn't say much. And when Kempson answers his very few questions, he just sits there and looks at him quietly. And then this is what we all do: Kempson starts saying more stuff because he doesn't. We don't like silence. We'll fill it in. And and it was really good police work. I, I, I met him. The detective outside court one day, I said, "God, you know that was an amazing interview you did with Kempson. Congratulations, he says, thank you." I said, "So, um, is that you know, is that like a deliberate tactic?" And he just stared at me till I started gabbling.
2: <laughs> Fortunately for us, Steve, you were a very fine gabbler. Um, Your previous book, Scenes of the Crime, was about location, uh, places, towns, and cities where where the bad stuff happened. This book is really about character flaws. Um, Is character a richer vein, do you think, for an author for this type of thing, or Mm. how does it? You've sort of there's quite a lot of reference in, in in the book to characters and their failings.
3: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's as interesting as writing about. Places that previous book, scene of the crime, was really sort of like a, um, it was like a, a travel guide to the New Zealand murder. <laughs> Let's go to another horrible place where another horrible thing happened and go through town and stare at it in horror. Whereas this one is, yes, probably is more about character. Um, there's a chapter here on uh, the person who I probably say was the closest to any kind of definition of of evil who I've come across and that would be Malcolm Raywa that that was that was unbelievable his deceit was so offensive and so insulting another case by the way of belated but it did happen another case of um spectacular competence from the police because they they began with spectacular incompetence by locking up Tana as you may remember. I and mean, finally, they were persuaded that it was Raywa, and their prosecution of him was not easy. It's a historic case. It's very hard to prove, but spectacular police work and prosecution work of this guy who um, was was, yeah, uh, just um, his deceit and his dishonesty and his callousness. Uh, was of a, a rare quality, strangely, he lacked depravity, but he had everything else um, but yes, character and um character and i mean I think there are um, there 's like seven or eight stories about violent crime um there 's one story which is there purely for um comedy made me laugh every single day for several years is a story about the uh, continuing continuing case of um, uh, that wretched individual who I quite like in many ways, uh, Colin Craig and his endless haunting of the High Court of Auckland and these libel cases and Every time he did it, even, even when he had a point, he just looked so wrong. And he would never give up. He was kind of like a terminator of stupidity. Just wouldn't stop. He was libeled himself for every court appearance, basically holding a huge sign over his head saying, I am a complete wretch. Poor fellow. Um, and yeah, and then there were three other stories which um, are really the sort of the, the, the undercurrent or the theme of the book. And these aren't violent crimes; these are stories about three people who who disappeared.
2: Um, what what inspired you to to take a look at those those three cases? Because oh, yeah. they they were not well known in any way, shape, or form, were they? No, no. I was just very attracted to their to their stories of people who.
3: Um, People who went missing, people who got lost, people who made people who made um the wrong decision. Um, people who in some in some ways sort of failed a test. And they all died. Uh and they were they were terribly moving stories. Uh, I think the subtitle is Twelve Stories of Death and Disappearance. And um Yeah, I was very attracted to those particular stories. Um, I think one of them began, I was on a family holiday, and we drove from uh, Rotorua to Taupo. And all along that road, um, it's quite a long road, there were maybe, say, a dozen photographs, signs, uh, nailed to um, telephone poles all along there, missing, have you seen this man? And a photograph of somebody who looked, you know, frankly looked quite deranged, but it was compelling. I was like, what the hell? What's going on? And even though I was on holiday, <laughs> I wrote it down. And yeah, subsequently followed up on this, and it was a terribly sad story, very, very moving of a, um, a man who was um, intellectually disabled was living in Rotorua. He was under sort of care. And um, he, he, he got on a, a strop one day and he walked off. And, and they drove after him, the, the caregivers, and um, lost him. And he was never seen again. And his parents um, spent all of that summer biking around. Uh, Bay of Plenty, all sorts of places looking for them. And they had lots of leads. You know, I followed in their footsteps. We went to a forest, uh, to an abandoned forestry town where there'd been a sighting. And we went to this really spooky, abandoned town. You know, it was terrifying. I mean, who knew who the hell could be living there who might leap out at any moment? Um, it was just terribly, terribly sad, and um, and you know felt such grief for the uh, for the parents and for the man himself um, who yeah who just got who just got lost and was never seen and um,
2: you all know Rotorua right. Um, Some of the most beautiful narrative in the book, um, I think, is your interviews with family members of those disappeared. How do you broach those conversations with family members? How do you build that trust to have that conversation?
3: Oh, just be myself, I guess. Um, Just go in quietly, sensitively. Don't ask too many questions. Don't expect to get the full story or anything like that because that would be like a, almost a form of like molestation. You know, tell me everything.
2: Just tell me what you can, I guess. So you're not doing the death knock. With, is that what journalists call <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. I've never done one of those. A death knock. Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, where you,
3: this is where somebody has died and a journalist will go to the house of the family of the deceased and knock on the door and ask that um, really insightful question, how do you feel? Uh, no, I haven't done that, but I guess I've done variations of that for this book uh, with this, this poor boy who went missing in Rotorua and sat with his family for a very long time. And I guess essentially I was asking iterations of how do you feel? But really I was asking them about what was he like, tell me about his life. Um Where have you looked for them? When you sort of ask questions which are concerned with gathering information, it's the way people tell them and the emotion that they put into them. Um, Very, very compelling. uh, And becomes very compelling, um, you know, it becomes very compelling literature actually.
2: There's some, um, and we'll, we'll come to questions from the floor soon, but I just want to ask one last question, Steve. Um, there's quite a startling revelation in the introduction about your own personal struggles at the time. Um, and, and Steve's spoken about the non-phoniness and the authenticity that he brings to his writing, which I completely and utterly support and agree with. Um, but you talk about your own, you were you were having a pretty tough time in your own personal life. Mm. Um, and that sort of set you off on this path to think about some of these disappearances. You Can you talk a little bit about
3: yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, there were strong parallels with one particular case, a, um, a man whose body had been found uh, in a creek beneath a little footbridge in the Auckland Domain. And it was reported that he was
2: uh, probably drunk,
3: And I said, oh, that might not be right. So I looked into that one very closely and very deeply. And what I basically do with all these stories, I don't have any sort of particular skills as a journalist, frankly, uh, but I talk to as many people as I possibly can. I'm just always talking to people. not really a skill. just talk to someone and then at the end of the interview, you say, do you know anyone else who I could talk to? And they give you a name and so on and so on.
2: This is Steve being very modest
3: really. No, no, it's true. <laughs> um and um yes, yeah, so this chap who whose whose body was found in a in a in a in a ditch. Um yeah, I found uh quite strong parallels uh with my own life. He had been a journalist, uh as it turned out. Didn't know that at the beginning. And uh, his his family life had broken up, which mine had, uh, and there were other parallels as well. Um, and yeah, I I I, um, I followed his footsteps. Uh, he was drinking in a bar on a rainy winter's evening downtown, and I followed where he would have walked from that bar to the creek in the domain, but with one big difference. Uh, I did it in the daytime. He did it at two in the morning, in winter. And um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 um, I, um, I didn't want to sort of stop talking to people that about that one, you know? I mean, I'm like that with most stories, I just, can't stop talking to people really and, and asking them about what, what, you know, what happened and what that person looked like is a question that I always ask, what did he look like, what did she look like? It's funny that question can lead to so many sort of interesting answers, because people, many people don't give you a physical description, or well, they do, but they, they then lead it into a, a description of the person that they knew and what they were like emotionally a really good question, I find. Um, but, yeah, uh, many, many journalists um, are sort of reluctant to stop uh, questioning because it means they then have to sit down and write, and writing is the, the, the thing, the last thing that most journalists want to do, uh, mainly because they can't write and they're trapped uh, uh, in a situation where they're reading their own terrible prose and really they just want to be out interviewing people. Um, Whereas to me, um, I, 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 I love the writing and I write super fast too, super fast, super fast. I never think about the story I'm writing until I sit down and write it, ever. And when I sit down to write it, I don't think about where it's going or what's going to happen next, I just start writing. And then I finish it and I don't rewrite it ever. I don't know if that's interesting. Several people seem to have left the audience. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any questions from the... Yes. Uh, from Can, the, from the, from the... Would
2: anybody like to ask Steve oh, a question?
1: Suit. Hey, Steve. Um, sitting where you are now in your life and having written so much, do you ever think you might have wanted to be a policeman? <laughs> <laughs> the desire to find out and to find those missing things that the police might have actually missed in their own investigations. Um, no, not really.
3: Um, I I don't I don't rate myself as somebody who finds out uh, important things like Mike White did with the Mark Lundy thing, and he overturned the whole theory that. Family were killed during shortland Street and so forth like that um, which is a piece of magnificent investigative journalism and it's not what I do uh, I don't solve really um, but I will very briefly say that i i have I have thought that it would be nice to do something good in the world you know it would be nice to display some sort of level of spectacular competence and 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 bring something good to the world that police do every single day. You know, they reassure you, they calm you, they return things to you, they catch the right people. And I don't do any of that. But, yeah, never wanted to be one of those. The company would be a fucking bore.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Any more questions from the floor? One here. We, we need you to use a microphone, sorry. It's on its way. Oh, you, you look loud. I am loud. Well.
0: <laughs> it's, it's
2: for the recording. Oh, it's for the recording. Oh, right. <laughs> um, in the
0: uh, Sophie Mala- Oh, Sorry, in the Sophie Mullane case... Grace Mullane. Grace Mullane, sorry. Sorry, Grace. Sophie. Um, <laughs> did you ever speak to any of the flatmates of the perpetrator? Um, you know, the kids that had taken him into their flat, and they must have been frightened of him at times. Did you ever speak to any of them? Uh, No, I I didn't actually. um,
3: Probably because um, I never really thought for any particular length of time, no more than say 10 seconds, I I ever thought that he was an interesting person. Mm. I just didn't think he was interesting. Mm. He didn't make that story. It was his depraved actions which made that story and Grace's grace, Grace's innocence, Grace's treatment. But he himself, he was really very uninteresting. Raywa is interesting. Uh, Bain is super interesting. Um, Lundy, who I've met several times, he's not that interesting, actually. He a sink
2: salesman. He was a sink salesman. He
3: was a sink salesman. Yeah, kind of. He was kind of. (laughs) He he was kind of vaguely unlikable, frankly. But that's no comment whatsoever on his guilt or innocence. He was just a vaguely unlikable sink salesman
2: who had lost his wife and child. Any more questions from this wonderful audience? One down the. Several.
3: What made David Bain so super interesting? David Bain, what do you think? I just think he's a <laughs> bit of a nerd. Do you? He's rather more rich than that. Um, I think he's a very interesting guy. Um, he's certainly the subject of one of the most interesting books I've, I've read on New Zealand crime, and that's the one by James McNeish. Uh, that some of you may have read that it's an incredibly interesting book. Um and it's an examination of his um what's the book called? I think it's it's called The Mask of Sanity and the way according to James McNeish, David Bain presented himself as a um functioning, cool, calm, sane individual. Or in fact he was a according to James McNeish, uh was a raging um psychopath. No, he's he's super interesting and Goodness gracious, you know, that last, the paper run itself, that is incredibly interesting, what he was up to that morning, as is the copy of the last paper he was delivering. I went to the National Library and found it, the ODT. I think it was June 20, my birthday, easy to remember, and read the paper. And uh, it was uh, interesting to see how many um, poignant and tragic, almost omens and portents there were in that newspaper to what was about to happen. Uh, Crossword, three down, sins of the father. (laughs) (laughs) The, The Bible saying for the day was something almost, pointing the finger at David Baines. It was basically, watch that nerd. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's really interesting. Um, Don't really have a firm opinion on that. I probably, I did study it a couple of years ago when that TV series was on. I did quite a lot of reading. Uh, Spoke with Joe Caram, which was neither here nor there. Uh, And listened to that um, really quite unlistenable podcast, Uh, which basically blamed David Bain. And if anything, the podcast made me think, hmm, this is now the official truth or the official version that David Bain did it and got away with it. I shall challenge that theory. And I looked into the possibilities of the dad, who, of course, was found guilty, the possibilities of the dad actually being the uh, killer. And if anything, I probably veer towards that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it may well have been
2: Robin Bain. We have another question, Soph?
1: Um, I don't know if it's a canon of law or whatever, but it, it seems like it's a better thing to let someone guilty go free than convict an innocent person, but juries jurors seem... R- really keen on um, like my experience of it as well, they seem very keen on convicting people. I was just wondering if you have an opinion on that system and whether you can see a future with AI or any other way of getting past
3: Oh, that. AI. Yeah. Is that a possibility? Is that what well I don't know.
1: The jury system seems dodgy. Yes.
3: <laughs> I was just right. wondering if you had
1: an opinion on that. All right. So
3: you reach a verdict by f- punching all the information into a computer and seeing what the computer thinks. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> um, gee, that's an unusual one. I haven't heard that. Um, oh, yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, you heard my, my, my narrative about the jury and the second Lundy trial and what, what shocking... Games they were playing what what sort of ridiculous plot that they were forming of having someone to spy on Mark Lundy watching the film, and he didn't watch the film anyway. why would he he't want to look at himself being charged with murder twenty years ago, so it was pointless um, yeah well mm-hmm. it's um it's 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 um a jury is imperfect because we're imperfect, but uh, I, think it's, I think it's about the best we can do. I think it's bloody good. I support it. I'm into it. I prefer a jury over a judge alone trial, for example. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to be too sort of blithe about it because these are matters of freedom or incarceration, but uh, it's the best model we have, I think, for the community making a decision. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in favor of it. Uh, I will say though that um, if ever I was uh, charged with anything so heinous that it would go to a trial, uh, I'd plead guilty to avoid a trial. A trial is appalling. It's a terrible experience. It's so intense. It's so psychologically damaging and draining. Everyone looking at you. You got inky little creatures like me writing down everything. Nah, I'd say oh, let's just do without this. I'll, I'll go away. I'm sort of half joking, but honestly, it's it's one of the worst places in the world as a courtroom. It's it's a chamber of it's a it's a it's it's like a laboratory. It's like some sort of experiment is being conducted. and You don't know quite why. Uh, it's terrifying, honestly. You know, Try and do anything to avoid it. Just say you did it. <laughs> you probably did. <dead.
2: laughs>
3: Not looking at you for any particular...
2: OK, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much, Steve. Would you join me, please, in... Um showing our appreciation Steve will be down near the bar counter um, to sign books if you'd like to purchase a copy of Missing Persons I highly commend it, it's an entertaining if somewhat grisly read Thank you Steve
3: Thanks so much, Uh, Glenham is my favourite literary festival in the country The hospitality
0: is awesome Thank you That was a great conversation from the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. For more information about the event, head to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. Thanks for listening.